So in 49 BC, uh, as a part of his march to conquer Rome by um, inciting civil war, Julius Caesar led his army in crossing over a fairly small and unimpressive and inconsequential river called the Rubicon. Now, right before he crossed, while he was still standing in sort of authorized, safe territory, Caesar said famously, the die is cast. Meaning, when he went over that river, there was no turning back. Caesar at that point had accepted his fate by entering into forbidden territory with his army behind him. He would either become king or he would die trying. And this is why we now say that crossing the Rubicon means crossing over the line to accept the consequence, consequences of our actions no matter what. It's a way of saying, bring it on because there's no way to turn back now. It's a way of saying, I'm committing myself to a certain path and I will deal with the consequences. So when you've crossed the Rubicon, you've reached the point of no return. <laughs> it's when the plane has reached a point where there's not enough fuel to go back and it's got to land somewhere else. It's when an army burns the bridge behind them because they are marching to new territory. It's when Cortez had his men destroy all 11 ships behind them as they committed to conquering a new land. To cross the Rubicon is to be aware of the consequences of your decision and to accept them. It's understanding that there is no safety net to go back to the old way of life. To cross the Rubicon is to step over the line and accept the consequences no matter what. I think this is some of what Jesus was feeling when he was entering Jerusalem at the beginning of the week that would end in his crucifixion. In fact, as Mark reports it in chapter 11, Jesus went into the temple on Monday evening right before our passage to look around and sort of size up the temple to look at the place and get a good look at it. And I think that as Jesus stood there and he was looking around at this momentous, gargantuan, significant temple, it was the beginning of his Rubicon moment because he knew the fate that awaited him at the end of the week. And he looked at that knowing that he was accepting the consequences and there was no turning back. So on Tuesday, <laughs> Jesus casts his die. He crosses over. Look with me, if you would, at Mark eleven, fifteen to 19. This passage here that we just read is Jesus accepting the risk of backlash for declaring the coming of the kingdom of God. It's Jesus accepting the risk of backlash for the sake of the mission he knows that is ahead of him. <laughs> and it's instructive and helpful and a model for us of what courage in our own life looks like for the sake of the mission. Jump in with me at verse 15, if you would, and look at just the first couple verses to begin with. Mark eleven fifteen. it says this, they came to Jerusalem, meaning Jesus and his 12 disciples, and he entered the temple 
and began to drive out. Uh, John tells us uh, that Jesus used a whip. All four of the Gospels have this account. And John adds that he drove them out with a whip. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus absolutely flips out. He just flips out. He knows full well what he's doing, but on the face of it, it looks like he's lost it. I can just hear the disciples going, dude, Jesus, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> calm down. Now, now, why was Jesus so upset? Now, the, the problem was not the selling per se intrinsically. There was, in fact, no scriptural precedent or prohibition against selling in the outer courts of the temple where they were selling. And and let me just say parenthetically that we take a loss on the hub. FYI. So I figured I'd throw that in there. Get that on the record, please. So back to Mark 11. The problem was not selling per se intrinsically. In fact, these merchants provided a, a needed service of selling animals that were required for sacrifices at the temple. Pilgrims from afar found it much more convenient to buy their animals in Jerusalem rather than transport them across the country. The problem that was this. <laughs> Some of the priests and the local politicians were colluding together. They were in business together, and they maintained a strict control over these temple merchants. In fact, often they would demand a kickback from the sales. And just in case someone got wise and tried to set up a competing market for animal sacrifices elsewhere, the priests had that covered too because every animal to be sacrificed had to pass a temple inspection. And guess which animals always passed the temple inspection? The system became filled with with greed and corruption. And instead of ensuring justice, the leaders were encouraging corruption and they were benefiting from it. They were profiting off of it. So Jesus walks into that scene and he makes a scene. He makes a scene to make the point that they were abusing God's blessing by perverting the temple into a place for self instead of God's glory. That's the problem Jesus sees here. Keep reading. Look at verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, meaning, don't you know where the Scriptures say, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And the answer to that is, of course they knew that that's what the Scripture said. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. You've turned the temple into a shelter for bandits and for self. Now, Jesus is quoting here from a couple places, primarily from Isaiah 56, uh, verses 7 and 8, which say this. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, all nations, same word. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares... I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God's intent all along would be to gather all who would worship him. In fact, in 1 Kings 8, as King Solomon was dedicating that very temple, 
he had a prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8. And he says this, speaking directly to God, he says this in 1 Kings 8, 41 and following. He says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a faraway country for your name's sake. In other words, when a non-Jew comes to the temple because of your reputation, Lord, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he, the foreigner, verse 42, when he comes and prays toward this house, remember Solomon's asking God, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the people of the earth, all the nations of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. God's intent all along was always to gather all who would worship him. Quick question. What do you think came first for those Jewish priests and leaders in the temple? The corruption or the prayerlessness? I suspect the prayerlessness. When anybody loses that vital, ongoing connection with God, anything can happen. The wheels of religion may still turn The songs may still be sung. The rituals kept. Everyone may still mouth the right words. But when the praying stops, the real power is gone. And somewhere along the way, those Jewish leaders had lost their connection with God. And they had lost their way. And the consequences were dire. In fact, back to the context of Mark 11, it's helpful to note that all of this corruption which angered Jesus here was taking place in the outer court of the Gentiles, they called it, the court of the nations. That was the one place. It was the only place in the entire temple. It was the one place where non-Jew could enter. So think about this. A, A Jewish priest would absolutely never have allowed that kind of corruption to take place anywhere near the holy place in the, in the inner temple, inside the temple proper. Yet not only did they tolerate it, but they promoted it in the one place non-Jews could assemble to pray and to seek God. Are we tracking here as to why Jesus is upset? These Jewish leaders had become more concerned about gaining the comforts of the world in a way that prevented God's mission to the world. This is is the crux of the matter for Jesus. And it's not just about the Jewish leaders. When we let the comforts of the world become the mission in a way that prevents the resources and blessing of the world as a mission to others, I think that's... I think that's what makes Jesus angry here. And so Jesus (laughs) overturns the tables. Not only does he get angry, but they get angry. (laughs) Jesus overturning the tables and, and running the people out of the temple made the Jewish leaders, the powers that be, obviously angry too. Look at the last couple of verses here. Verses 18 and 19. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They 
heard the commotion. They saw what was going on. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Mark uses an ongoing verb here in in verse 18 to describe how the chief priests and uh, the scribes were already seeking a way to destroy him as far back as Mark chapter 2 and 3 and all the way through Mark up to this point, Jesus is making them mad. (laughs) And they begin to scheme to kill him. It says at the beginning of Mark 3, they sought a way to destroy him. So, So here in Mark 11, when Jesus overturns the tables, Jesus is not only crossing the point of no return, he's poking the bear. You know what happens when you poke a bear, right? Suffice it to say, he doesn't give you a big hug. This is Jesus deliberately, wittingly, intentionally making the powers that be upset. (laughs) Jesus knows full well what he's doing here. He knows full well what he's doing here. Friends, an army doesn't cross into enemy territory or burn bridges or destroy ships accidentally. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here in terms of how they were going to respond and what the consequences would be to himself. He knows that when he turns over those tables, it's going to seal his fate as a dead man. Now, sometimes when Jesus poked the bear, it was because there were people in need and their need rose above the convention. Jesus healed and helped people when the rules were against it. We talked about that last week. Sometimes he poked the bear just to reveal the kingdom of God because people weren't seeing it. Sometimes he poked the bear and said things just just so that people would understand when it didn't make sense like the fig tree right before this. But in this case, Jesus pokes the bear for a specific reason. To reorient people to their purpose of building his kingdom instead of building their own. He was already seeing in the temple the beginnings of a kingdom of self and what it began to look like. In this case, Jesus was provoking to reorient his disciples and his people to their purpose of building the kingdom of God instead of building their own. So you see, the mission of God to save sinners is more important than our safety and our security. I don't think we believe this well, but I think it's Bible. And I think it's what Jesus modeled. The mission of God to us was more important than his. Right? (laughs) You see, when people build their own kingdoms from resources that aren't ultimately theirs, it actually makes Jesus angry. It did then, and it still does today. It's not just the Jews who can lose sight of God's eternal purpose. Anyone who thinks that they have an exclusive right to forgiveness or thinks the church exists for their comfort and convenience makes the same mistake. 
So do people who argue that, that charity begins at home as an excuse for not supporting anybody else outside of our own. Just like those who are tempted to see the church as a country club for saints rather than as a hospital for sinners. We easily can make the same kinds of mistakes. Our God that we worship today still wants all people to hear the message of Jesus. People in your own family, people across the street, people across the tracks, people all over the globe. Jesus himself weeps for lost souls. And when we use his blessing for self instead of blessing others, I think I think that displeases him. In fact, if you want to make Jesus angry, <laughs> according to Mark 11, if you want to make Jesus angry, block access to the presence of God. If you want to make Jesus angry, block access to the poor and the outcast. The, the minute we begin to block access to the presence of God because we like how it is now or, or, or we like the amount of money we have in our bank or, or we're comfortable in our own safety and security, that's the minute we begin to cross over into the territory that not only did Jesus not model, but that God never calls us to occupy. Listen, friends, here's half the reason Christians are ineffective in changing the world around us today. Retreat is easy when you think you have the option. And that's where a lot of us live. Apathy feels like a valid option when you can control your circumstances with personal resources. Maybe, maybe you've been approaching your life. Maybe you've been approaching your Christian life with a safety net mentality, thinking you can always keep the old ways around for when you need them. Maybe it's time to burn some of your own ships and bridges. And go all in with Jesus and accept the consequences of following Him that you've been trying to avoid. Because that's a life of adventure for the sake of mission and joy in seeing people have access to the presence of God. Maybe that's why you're not seeing kingdom fruit in your life because you still feel the need to keep personal control. Friends, we have to be willing to accept the consequences that we said we were inviting when we crossed our own Rubicon of baptism and followed Jesus. When we said yes to Jesus, we said yes to the risk of backlash that comes from following Him. We said yes to the consequences. Jesus knew full well what He was doing in the temple that day. And he accepted the consequences because he knew that people like you and like me needed desperately access to the presence of God. Last question. 
Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine what a great church we would be if we all accepted our version of a risk of backlash like Jesus did? Can, can you imagine what God can do when His people trust Him and live with courage for others instead of living in fear for self? Because that's the difference. Trust in God's provision means living with courage for the sake of others to know Him and have access to His presence. That's what, that's what Christian life on mission looks like. A Christian life that's about not risking and refusing that mission. It's a Christian life that lives in fear for the sake of hoarding for self. Friends, if we lived like outcasts and strangers desperately need the presence of God more than we need our comfort and our safety and our IRAs, the kingdom of God would be on full display. The power of God to change lives would be normal. That kind of church, that kind of church pleases Christ in a way that being afraid and protecting our own interests cannot. So, follow Jesus. Cast the die, cross the Rubicon, burn the bridge, <laughs> destroy the ships. And trust that God can use our corporate courage to move His mission forward. Let's pray.